Thank you. Do I need a microphone? Okay, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share. And I know that you are able to work and to move in the hearts of these young people. Father, I pray that you would touch each heart specifically. Father, some people here have no knowledge of the fellowship with Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would touch them in particular to want to seek your face. Father, there are others here that know you but have not gone the depth with your spirit that they ought to go. Father, draw them deeper. Lord, I pray that you would leave them with a with a great desire and passion to seek you through the Word of God because of the words that are shared here this evening. Father, I pray that they that each one here would be different because of tonight. Father, that you would leave them with something that they would remember for the rest of their lives. Father, do this in their lives, I pray. Lord, do it, I pray. May Jesus Christ be glorified. Father, I don't know how to do this, but by Your Spirit, speak tonight and let Your Holy Spirit touch these people with the power of God. And I commit this to You in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Okay, I'm going to talk about what the, the impact that the Bible has had in my life. To tell a few stories while I do that. And, and as I go through this, I don't want you to think that you have to be me. You do not have to be. I am, you know, you, you have to be what God has called you to be. I'm here just to share with you what God has done in my life. And, you know, I'll take it from the time that I got saved when I was a freshman as an undergraduate and go through some of the experiences and things that happened to me. So the topics I'm going to address are my college journey, my graduate school journey, postdoctoral journey. Then is there a prescription for thriving, thriving in Jesus Christ? Practical applications of the Scriptures and how God blesses each of us differently. And then a, a take-home message and then Q&A. What's that? What's wrong? Is that too much? Or? With a question in. Okay. All right. 1977, I was at Syracuse University, freshman. And I got saved on November 7th, 1977. A young man came up to me and as we were doing laundry in the laundry room in August or early September of my freshman year. And we got to talking. And I was from a Jewish home in New York City, grew up just north of the city, and I didn't even know that there was a claim on the table that Jesus Christ had died for my sins. I'm sure that I, have, I had heard it, but it, it never really registered very deeply with me. And um, I asked him what he wanted to do when he graduated. He said he wanted to go into lay ministry. And I said, lay ministry, what's that? He said, oh, maybe a missionary. I said, missionary? You don't need missionaries anymore. 
no such thing as missionaries anymore, are there? And uh, he said he'd like to give me an illustration of the gospel, and I didn't even know what he meant. Uh, to me, I knew he was an art student. I thought he wanted to draw me some pictures. And I said, you, you can tell me whatever you like. He said, I'd like to come to your room and, and talk with you. I said, that's fine. Just come by any time. And so a day or two later, he came by my room. He knocked, and he said, I'd like to give you this illustration. I said, sure, come on in. And my roommate wasn't in, so it was just me. And and he had me read a verse that says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I said to him, I've not sinned. And that's not a concept that's deeply ingrained within modern secular Judaism. And even those that happen to go to the synagogue, you go once a year on a particular day after fasting, and it's all taken care of. It's really quite simple. So I never really thought much about it. And then... Um, he had me read another verse after I told him that I wasn't a sinner. It was this, but, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I, I was immediately struck by that and struck very deeply because I was 18 years old and I was addicted to pornography. There was no such thing as the Internet, but I had a stash of magazines that I had gotten because I worked at a gas station on the highway all through high school, and the businessmen would throw away their, their magazines on Friday nights on their way home, and I'd pick them up right up out of the trash as part of my job was to clean the parking lots, and uh, I'd become addicted. And something really hit me when he said that, because that was the first revelation to me that I was a sinner. And I knew what pornography did for me and how addicted I was. And uh, so what happened was on November 7, 1977, I was all alone in my room. And I had gotten involved in a navigator's Bible study uh, through this guy and had attended a few of the studies. And I'm not sure what prompted me to do this. They had explained to me the way of salvation. And all alone in my room, I got on my knees. They never said I had to, and I don't know what motivated me to do this. That's not a typical Jewish thing, certainly not in secular Judaism. And I asked God to forgive me. And I said, Lord, please forgive me for my sins and come into my life. And I started weeping, and I couldn't stop weeping. And I felt as if there was a, a man in my room with me. And I opened my eyes and I couldn't see anybody. But it felt as if he was there. And I, I couldn't stop weeping. And all of a sudden, I felt clean. I felt that this burden that I had been carrying, that I was a sinner, was now lifted. And I felt that with this presence, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to get up from this presence. This man was in my room. And he had forgiven me. And I thanked him for dying for me. I didn't understand much, but I knew that I had been forgiven. Something happened to me on that night. And the, the young man that had shared with me saw me a couple weeks later in the hallway. He asked me, he says, Jim, did you, did you receive the Lord? And I said, I, I think I have. You know, I hadn't told anyone. What do you do? You know, a Jewish kid from New York and accepting Jesus Christ. And I said, well, why do you ask? He said, well, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. 
something happened to me on that day, and I felt very different. I all of a sudden had fellowship with God that I never knew. I never knew such a thing. And some Jews may contest with me that, oh, Jews have that experience. They have it. That's fine. I never had it as a Jew. I never knew it as a Jew. And I wasn't a good Jew, and had I been a good Jew, maybe it would be different. But I was quite a secular Jew, typical of most American Jews today. In May 1979, I joined a local church, and that, that had a big impact on me. And in August of that year, the end of the summer, I entered a discipleship program where where I moved in a house with nine other Christian guys. The house was owned by the local church, and we had, we had several things we did together. We had morning prayer meetings, discipleship classes, meals together. We did door-to-door outreach on campus, and we had reading from the Bible. And I started this reading from the Bible from beginning to end. I started reading from Genesis chapter 1. I'd read through it until I hit Genesis chapter 22. When I was done, I would start again. I've been doing that for over 30 years now. And it's a, it's a pattern. It's a methodology. I'm not saying you should have to do it. I'm just giving you what I've done. I read every word and every genealogy. I read every name, name by name. And what I say is I say, Lord, as I pick up the Scriptures and read today where I left off yesterday, please speak to me. Speak to me through the Scriptures. And God does that. God does it. He speaks to me. He speaks to me for each day. It is a rare thing that I have a dry time. I used to have more dry times, but now I rarely have a dry time. He speaks to me through the Scriptures. And I'm in no hurry to get through the Bible in a year. I never get through the Bible in a year. I will spend weeks sometimes in one portion, in half a chapter, just as God is speaking to me, and then I move on. Sometimes I read a commentary or help just to get the context of the time, but that's not my primary reading. My primary reading is I'm there, just me and the Bible and the Lord. And God speaks to me. And He speaks to me for daily events, for things that are going on in my life. He speaks through scriptural context. And I will give you examples of that that are very clear. I never stopped meditating on the scriptures. I started a pattern about that time of keeping scripture verses in my pocket. I do it to this day. And now I'll photocopy, just print out entire chapters and memorize entire chapters. And I still do that to this day. Some people think it's childish, childish. I'll continue to be childish in their eyes. I will continue to do it. This to me means very much. It means my life. I went to graduate school. I went to Purdue in 1981. I became very active in a local church. In fact, I took that very seriously. I had learned the power of the local church and the fellowship and the community of the local body of Christ. I had prayed all summer that God would lead me to the right church. And and there were numerous examples. And I had prayed and I... I, I uh, prayed that God would lead me to the right church and through a series of circumstances that very rapidly found a church and, and I prayed very specifically and God spoke to me. In fact, I remember I, I visited this, this local church, the first church that I, I, I had dropped off the rental car. It was a Sunday. I was walking back to the dorm and I, I walked into one church and it just, you know, I tried to talk to people. Nobody talked and I thought maybe this isn't right and I went out and I saw another church and I walked in there and I had, I had been looking in the, in the newspaper that they had sent me from Purdue and I'd looked at different churches and, and uh, nothing really keyed in but I remember that there was this church 
called the Upper Room Christian Fellowship, and he said, Upper Room Christian Fellowship, come worship with us. And I was walking back. I saw Upper Room Christian Fellowship. I went in there. The service was very different than what I was used to, but the people were awfully nice. The next Sunday, I was on my knees praying, and I said, Lord, I'll go back to that church again, but unless you speak to me specifically today, I won't return because I'll take that as a word that I need to move on. And I started to read in the scriptures where I had left out off the day before. And it said, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, the disciples said, where should we have the Passover feast? And Jesus replied to them, go and a man will show you an upper room and there have the Passover feast. That is how God speaks to me through the scriptures. God speaks directly through the scriptures like that all the time to me. And that was confirmed by the power of the Holy Spirit just dropping in upon me. The power of the Holy Spirit just brought this tremendous peace. And I locked into that church and served and, and was in community there. became very active. I was leading a home group. I uh, started in a home group. And after a year, I was leading a home group. Uh, I was preaching in that church a couple times a year. Um, I married after my first year of graduate school. My firstborn child was born in my third year of graduate school. I uh, did a lot of door-to-door outreach. I would knock on doors in the community. I would take a group of other guys and say, let's just go knock on doors. We'd go two by two and knock on doors. I said, let's try to, here's an apartment complex. Let's try to cover every door this month. And, and, and I remember knocking on doors and you know, said, I just want to talk with you about Jesus Christ. And people would slam the door, say something, slam the door. And I thought, how wonderful this is. Because the Bible says, blessed are you men, when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I, and I thought, I didn't even have to say anything, and I got this tremendous blessing, because it says, re, your reward in heaven is great when you persecute it for the sake of righteousness. I said, I, this is great, I'll knock on doors all night if I can get blessings every time they slam it. It's very, very low, low barrier to getting a blessing. I had student prayer meetings in my dorm room before I got married, and then after I got married, we had, we had these weekly meetings in, in our apartment. I led a Bible study in the chemistry department's glass shop. Uh, the glass blower and a few of the other students would come and led a Bible study in there. And I'm, I'm not saying that you have to do all that I did. I mean, I'm just saying what I did. You know, I was pretty active in the department. I had 12 publications upon graduation, which, which is pretty good today. And, and back then it was even better because we didn't have word processors. Everything was handwritten. And, and uh, then it type it out on a typewriter and, you know, the boss would chop it up and you'd retype the whole thing from beginning to end. Because, and, then, and then we'd draw these chemical structures with stencils and we'd put it on a typewriter and you know, type in the nitrogen, oxygen, and all these things. And then there was a meaning to cut and paste because we'd cut it out and leave space and paste it in. And then make, and, and uh, uh, that's the way we did it. And then we'd make photocopies, 12 copies of the paper, and send it in for publication. So it was a lot. But I never lost this practice of, 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 of scripture meditation, meditating on the scriptures, where I get before the Word of God and I say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me through this passage. This is what I did. My postdoctoral journey, I went to the University of Wisconsin in 1986, and uh, I was active in a local church, home group, Bible study we had in our home. Uh, my wife, again, would, just as she had done when we were at Purdue, I mean, she'd cook these meals every week. We'd have students in our home, and it was very easy to do, get students in our home. We'd always have a little Bible study time. Um, did the best I could. You know, I wasn't a, really great at it. I, I, 
understood it as best I knew, but somebody was appreciating it and people would come. And uh, I didn't want to despise the day of small beginnings. I started another Bible study in the chemistry department there at the University of Wisconsin on the, in, the, uh, in the lounge on the top floor of the building. And some of the secretaries would come and some other students would come along. 1987, my boss moved to Stanford University. I became active in a local church there. I spoke there on occasion in the main service. We had weekly home groups that we attended and had them in our home. Uh, led a Bible study in the chemistry department there. Started a Bible study in the chemistry department at Stanford University. Again, it's very easy to do that. I'm not saying you have to do that. You're you, I'm me. This is what I did. God blessed. Um, you know, people would say, how do you get any work done? I have no idea. I have no idea how I was able to do all of this while waking up early in the morning and reading my Bible and meditating on the Lord and having a wife. And now in time I was in Stanford, we had our second child, so I had a wife and two children. And how I was able to get so much work done. But before I'd gone to do my postdoc, I had prayed that I would have three publications with just my advisor and myself on the publication, where I would do everything for those publications. It would just be my, my advisor and myself. And I prayed that I would have two publications in the Journal of the American Chemical Society and one in the Journal of Organic Chemistry. At the time, the Journal of, Organic, uh, Journal of the American Chemical Society was the leading journal for, for chemistry in all the world. And I prayed that I would have two in there, just he and I, and then one in the Journal of Organic Chemistry, which is the second most famous journal in the world for, for chemistry. And upon my time there, before the postdoc started, I prayed for that. And by the time I left, that's exactly what I had. Two papers in the Journal of American Chemical Society with just my, my advisor and myself, and one in the Journal of Organic Chemistry. You can look them up today. They're right there. Barry Trost, James Tour, they're, they're right there. I can go back and and see the answer to prayer. Many people say, I pray, but God never seems to answer. I say, do you really pray? Because the Bible says, you do not receive because you do not ask. So the primary reason why we don't receive answers to prayer is because we just flat out don't pray. I pray for all sorts of things, all the time. I don't receive answers to prayer that I would like all the time. Sometimes the answer is no. But I pray all the time. I pray all the time. I ask for all sorts of things. I pray for my family all the time. I I find myself walking and praying all the time, asking God, speaking to God. I enjoy Him. I love Him. I love His presence. To me, He means so much. I feel that He speaks to me all the time through the Scriptures. I can open up the Word of God and just start meditating on the Word of God. And God speaks to me. God lives. He is living. and He is active. And people in their foolishness try to come and explain away God and philosophers in their foolishness. And I think, I don't want to be like you. You're such a depressing person. Why would I want to be like you? I am very contented of, in my relationship with the Lord. God is very, very good to me. Is there a prescription for thriving? And I believe there is. It says in Psalm 1, How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. So there is a prescription for prosperity. And let me just say up front, prosperity is not money. I know many oil traders in town, many of them. They're friends of mine. They invite me out to lunch all the time. More lunches than I can go to. I just have to say, you know, just put it off. They are very, very wealthy people. They own very large houses in River Oaks. Sometimes multiple lots in River Oaks. 
and you want to know something, they long to have the life that I have because the blessings that I'm talking about transcend money. I have a relationship with my father. I have a relationship with my family. I have four children, and they all like me <laughs> most, most of the time, which is really quite an accomplishment um, for a person to stand up and to say they have four children and all the children like them. I enjoy them. I enjoy being with them. I like them. And uh, um, I have a wife that I love so much. I love her so much. I have a relationship with God. This is a treasure. These are absolute treasures. I have a career, a job that I love. Most Americans do not enjoy their work. They enjoy going home. The only reason that I go home is because I get tired. I love my work. I really do. I love being in my office. People say, do you like traveling? No, I like being in my office. If I want to travel, I'd just rather look on the Internet and see it. I, don't, I, don't, I just like what I do. I like teaching. I like doing research. And God has given that to me. God is very good to me. It says that when everything else is drying up, I'm going to be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. But this comes at a price. The price is this. That... Uh, in His law, I meditate day and night. There's no such promise for those who meditate three times a week. There's no such promise for those who read the Bible three times a week. Maybe there is a blessing, but there is no such promise. There is a promise for doing this daily. We may not like to hear that, but God can promise whatever He wants. That's up to Him, right? People can't extract from us promises that we want to give. Promises are ours to give to people according to what we'd like to give. One thing that Jews do very well is to look at the Scriptures and see what it says and take it. It says, if I meditate day and night, these things will come upon me. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. There again is the same thing. So here I am preaching to you prosperity and success message. Success and prosperity message. It has nothing to do with money. It is something much deeper, much richer. It is a relationship with God. The Bible says this. But look what it says. Don't let it depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. There it is again. The promise comes with some act of obedience. There it is again. Some promises we get just for being believers. There are promises that fall upon us just for that. There are promises that God gives to us sometimes. But there's others that come by pure acts of obedience. Because what it does is it causes us to be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Because when we meditate on it, it causes us to do according to what's written in it. So that when, we, when I open up the Word of God and I start reading, it's like, uh-oh. There's something in my life I have to change. I never noticed this before. I have to change my life. I can't just willy-nilly lose my temper without going back and apologizing to people. You know, I, other people can do things that I can't do because of what the Scriptures tell me. The scriptures tell me, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind it around your neck. Write it on the tablet of your heart. Don't let truth leave you. 
don't let kindness leave you. So that when I'm unkind, I have to go and apologize to the people to whom I'm unkind. Because I'm just like you. I lose my temper just like you do. I get, you know, get just like you do. I'm not, nothing special about me. I have to be truthful. So when there's, you know, I don't want to have, give you an example, I don't want to have illegal software in my computer. Tell my students, if there's illegal software on, my computer, I don't, on our computers in the lab, get it off. If you need software, I'll buy it. No illegal songs on my computer. I won't do it. Other people can do it. I can't. Because God calls me to truth. I can't do it. This is what the Scriptures call me to. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight then all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. It is my meditation all the day. It will make me wiser than my enemies, and I'll have more insight than all my teachers. It doesn't say more insight than all your Bible teachers. It says than all your teachers. I've had the great blessing of working and studying under some very good chemists. And I'm believing this verse. More insight than all my teachers. That's what it says. That's what it says. You know, sometimes people will tell me they just have trouble receiving that promise. And I hate to see the promise go to waste. So I say, oh Lord, the promise that they could have had had they believed, let it not go to waste. I'll take it. I'll take it. I believe it. I'll take it. Practical applications of the scriptures. I'll show you a few of the applications from the early days. I have applications from today as well. But in, in uh, well, let me start here. Students in our home. We have students in our home all the time. My wife graciously feeds 40 to 50 students in her home every week. But she hasn't just started doing that. Nor did she do it. Start doing that when we came to Rice. She's been doing that since we were graduate students, since I was a graduate student. And, and uh, I don't know, within a couple months of our living together, we, uh, of, our, our, of our being married, that we started to have people. It wasn't even a couple I remember like, even like the second day we arrived together from our marriage and we got home. I started inviting individuals that I knew, but we started inviting groups of people within the first few months. And, and I remember the house started getting really messy, really dirty, and, and the college students were just inherently dirty and all, inherently messy all the time. And you know how you are. You know, you just come into somebody's house and you put your feet up on the table. You know, you have a coffee table there and you're just you know, sitting on the couch, you put your feet up. I know to you that this is, this is what you do at college. But, you know, you're in somebody's home and you're putting your feet up. And, and, and you know, I just kind of give up. You're just saying anything. And, and you wonder... You know, you're going to do this when you go for a job interview and, you know, just put your feet up on the table while you're talking to the interviewee, the interviewer. I mean, but in, in any case, this is just inherently how college students often are. And so we were at Purdue, and I remember this winter that the college students just came walking in, and I would watch them. And they would walk in without even wiping their feet, and it's covered with, they were covered with snow. And they just come walking in. And my daughter was a little girl and she'd crawl up and she'd start eating the little snow balls that are falling off her feet. 
And I remember seeing them eating, sitting on the couch, and you know, we'd have these paper plates, and food was falling off, and they didn't even know it. Because in the dorm, it just flat out doesn't matter. But you know, you're in somebody's apartment, somebody's home, so you're supposed to act different. But they're not being mean, they're just inherently, we're like this. And, and uh, it really started to bother me, because this, this was my first little apartment with my, with my wife and my daughter, and and I found my daughter one day, it was a couple of days after we had this meeting in our home, and I found her chewing on a chicken bone that she had found behind the couch, <laughs> behind the pillow. And it really started to bother me, all the messiness in the home. And I thought, you know, maybe we should, just shouldn't do that. And I was reading one morning after praying about this, and says, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. <laughs> and God spoke to me through that verse. That verse spoke to me. And God was confirming to my heart that you can keep your little apartment clean if you just don't bring them in. But if you want to see the power of God placed in these young people's lives, you keep your home open. And on that day, I told God I would never close my home. Never, never, never. And to this day, you know, I'm not into, into uh, you know, Tupperware parties or anything like this. But when it's for the service of God's kingdom for fellowship, for prayer, for Bible study, our home is open. It will always be open. And to this day, you know, we have, you know, now we can afford a maid, and a maid comes on Monday morning just to help scrub down the floors, just with all the stuff that's there and all the things that accumulate because of the Sunday lunches. And I'm okay with that. I'm not at all upset. In fact, I consider it a great blessing to do this, a great blessing. But it's because God confirmed it to my heart through the Scriptures. 28 years ago, because God confirmed that to my heart 28 years ago, this verse resonates with me after 28 years. That's what the Scriptures will do. They will always be there for you to go back to and say, God spoke to me from that verse on that day in that little apartment. September 3rd, 1993, I was invited back to Purdue University to give a, a lecture in the chemistry department. I had just... just received tenure, and I'd gone back, and my professor, who was a Japanese professor, received the Nobel Prize this year, so a demanding guy, but nice man, nice man, but uh, quite demanding, and I remember him saying, anytime I brought him a good result in the lab, he would say to me, pretty good for your level. And the level never got above his waist. Never. And, and uh, I knew he'd be in the audience, and I knew the, the, his boss, who was a Nobel Prize winner, H.C. Brown, would be in the audience. And, and every morning before I go to give a lecture, you know, I'm in a hotel room somewhere, and I pray that the Lord would fill me and hit the people with the Holy Spirit, just hit them with the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray this in lectures, that God would do this, whether it be a chemistry lecture or Bible or whatever. But, you know, in, in chemistry, you give a lecture, people aren't expecting to get hit by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can do this. And I prayed that God would really do something. And I prayed that, that God would really make it a great lecture. And, and that is, I started to read. I started reading and it said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt... You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. So here I am on my knees in my 
hotel room. And uh, God just started to lift my faith when I read this. And I said, Father, I pray that this is going to be the best lecture ever in that chemistry department. I don't know, you know, it's a hundred-year-old department. And I thought, God, you can really make this the best lecture ever. And I got to think, how will I really know? How do I know it's the best lecture? I haven't heard all the lectures. How do you know? I said, Lord, if it's really the best lecture, I pray that my professor would not say any of this for your level. So I pray that he would say that it, it was a super seminar, that it was super. And he doesn't use that word. So. But when I got done with the lecture, I knew God had blessed and God had anointed and he was sitting right on the front row. When I got done, he raised his hand, he stood up, and he said, Super! Super! <laughs> and, and I went up to this, this Nobel Prize winner that was sitting there, the H.C. Brown, who was, I don't know, 80, 85 years old at the time, and I, I shook his hand and I said, Thank you for coming to the seminar today. And he held on to my hand. He said, I want you to know something. That was the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. And I said, that's very kind of you to say it. And in typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, he said, I'm not saying it to be kind, I really mean it. (laughs) You see, God confirms his word. And may I never, may I never go a day without him speaking to me through the scriptures. It's so much fun to walk with God. I was once upset with a colleague because he had, you know, he, we didn't start out well together. I mean, we were friends. I was trying to be friends. And one day, he, I, was, I, I started on the faculty a year before he did. This was at the state university. I started on the faculty a year before him. And, and uh, so normally, I would get tenure a year before him if we both went to the full length to get tenure. He walks in my office one day, and he says, I'll get tenure before you ever do. Now, that's a very strange thing to say. That is like walking up to somebody and saying, I'm better looking than you are. (laughs) And even if it's true, to say such a thing is just, you know, it makes you look really ugly to say such a thing. So, you know, this just gives you somewhat of the character of it. Well, what happened was God blessed my career so much that, you know, I... I went from having a small metal student desk to having a big wooden desk and from a concrete floor to having carpeting and a secretary. And so many things started happening so quickly. God blessed my career so much. And he stayed with a little metal desk across the hall. And one day an undergraduate walked in and said, you know, I really like you. you know, I took your course. You're so nice. Da, da, da. I'm not really that nice, but she thought I was nice. And, and she... She said, but this professor across the hall, he's always saying bad stuff about you. And I thought, you know, the worst thing you can do is, is say something to an undergraduate that shouldn't be said because it's like fire. It just spreads very, very quickly. So I was really upset. And so I walked across the hall and I knocked on his door and I said, and I was just going to give it to the guy. And he wasn't in. And God began to speak to me because I had been meditating on a portion but I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So I was called upon to pray for him. So I break every day at noontime to go and pray someplace on campus. I'll go and pray. Often it's the chapel or someplace. Go and pray. And I've been doing this since I was an undergraduate. And so I was, went to the chapel and I was praying. And I, I said, okay, every day that I come to pray, I will pray for this God. I will pray that God blesses his work. 
God, you bless his work. He wasn't getting any grant money. He wasn't going anywhere. I started praying for him. He started getting grant money. He started getting more students. He started got a big NIH grant. He's become so successful. He got so successful that he got an offer from university, and he left. And I was ecstatic. <laughs> no. And so what happens is, you know, we always want God to remove the problems from our lives. And God's just saying, it's my problem. And if you want to get this extracted, all he has to do is deal with my heart. And once my heart was dealt with and I started loving the guy and praying for him, then God could remove him. Prior to that, he was staying because God was teaching me something through this. God blesses us differently. This is a long verse, but you know, you're all educated, so you can read with me. <laughs> what more shall I say, for time will fail me, if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So each one of these guys did something different. Their lives were different. And then there were others, women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, just also change and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. You see, everybody has a different destiny. I don't know how God is going to bless you. Maybe He's going to bless you differently than He blesses me, if you meditate on the Word. But I know He will bless you. I don't know how He's going to do it, but I know He will. I know He will. So I'm not saying you have to be like me. I'm saying, this was me. You are you. There's a take-home message. What did Moses say? This is what Moses said after 40 years of teaching people. 40 years. Here's how he summed it up. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to, your heart, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. This is the way. This man, after 40 years of instruction, summed up the whole thing. What are you going to write? What are you going to say? This is what I gave to my daughter when she got married on her wedding night. How do I summarize? How do I sum up all that I taught her from the Word of God? All that I tried to teach her? I gave her this verse. The important thing for us is here. It is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. It might be an idle word for some, but not for me. And it shouldn't be for you. It is not an idle word. It is your life. And when you neglect this, you neglect your life. I am not standing before you and saying, if you love mother or father more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. But Jesus stands before you and says that. He said it. The cost is high. The cost is profound in seeking Him. He is the one who says, if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. And one day, when you have children, you will understand the depth of that comment that Jesus made. He says, if you love anything more than me, you're not worthy of me. 
I wouldn't have the audacity to stand before you and say that. But He does. Because He is the one who gave His life for you. This is serious business. Do you want the Word of God or not? It is not an idle word for you. It is your life. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. If you delight in His commandments, your children will be blessed. This doesn't mean much to you today. One day it will mean everything to you. Because you will want blessings upon your children more than you want blessings for yourself. We have to work hard in life. But you have to balance that with a family and don't trash your family in it. I am a big proponent of working hard. I'd have no trouble having people work hard because I've never asked people to work harder than I work myself. I want my students to work hard. But God blesses. I wrote what I'm going to show you. I wrote in an article that was in this cover story. For this, I had received some, some silly award through the American Chemical Society. So, I had, so they asked me to write something about my career. This is what I wrote in a chemical journal. Just to give you an idea. I submitted 37 proposals in my first 36 months as a faculty member. And most of those were single PI, were single PI since collaborative proposals were less common in those days. You know, writing a proposal in those days was, was, was much tougher. I had a word processor by the time I was an assistant professor, but it was a very simple thing. You couldn't put figures in, so you actually made spaces, cut and paste and all that. It's hard. Make lots of copies, photocopy, and you, there was no e-submission. I mean, he made 14 copies. You checked every page in the, the whole thing to make sure that the copier didn't skip a page. It's a lot. So I worked hard. And there were a lot of failures along the way. A lot. You think I'm blessed all the time? No, I failed just like everybody else. On, a, on the days of receiving the declination of funding letters from the NIH, sadness certainly followed. I would always call, call my wife, Shireen, because she was repeatedly there to reassure me of my self-worth. And my children were still there to call me daddy. Hence, I endeavored to dwell only momentarily on the harsh, sometimes even unnecessarily personal comments of the reviewers. You know, in my heyday, when the country was doing well with funding and everything, only 30% of my proposals would get funded. But now with the hard times, only back down to about 20% of my proposals get funded. It's only one in five that I write. You know how much work it is to write a proposal? One in five gets funded. So I write all the time. You know, I go through hurdles all the time. This is part of life. So when you, when you get involved in your careers, just remember, don't trash your family along the way. It is your spouse that's going to reassure you of your self-worth. It's your children that are there to call you daddy. I see so many people trash their, their families for their careers. I want to leave you also with this. I have a series on scriptural sexual ethics on my website. If you go to jmtour.com and go under personal topics and audio files, you'll find this. It's a six-part series. I suggest you go through it. It's an introduction to scriptural sexual ethics. Redemption is not a sham. It's victory over lust for young men who feel that, that you, you have this struggle with lust and you just think it's part of you, you can never get past it. And this is hitting young women amazingly these days because of the way our society has come. There is victory over this. There is a prescription for victory over this. 
and you listen to this, and you follow this, and you will have victory over lust. It doesn't have to be a part of your life. I'll talk about the true meaning of manhood, the true meaning of womanhood, converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And what is the line for the unmarried? That's where it applies to you now. What is the line for the unmarried? You want to know what the line is? I'm very explicit with what the line is. And, and it's um, the people who are really most blessed by these series are actually, it's not the college students. It's those who've been married for a few years and they're finding that married life is miserable. And it's Christians. It happens to Christians all the time. And one of the most difficult places for them is in the bedroom. Very common. Very common in the church. That's why we run 52% divorce rate in the church. 52%. That means more than half of you in this room will get divorced, will undergo the pain of divorce. And you say, well, no, my parents were divorced and I'll never go through that. Well, just keep saying that and you watch. The thing you should be saying is, God help me that I don't fall into that. God help me that I don't fall into that. Because I don't care how much willpower you have. Without the grace of God, you're doomed. Marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from the current 52% to the extraordinary number of less than 1%. There is a practice that some couples have that lowers the divorce rate to less than 1% among those groups of people. It spans across religion. It's not Christian-specific. It's not Bible-specific. They have a certain practice. And less than 1% undergo that divorce. I would suggest, before you get married, that you listen to this and you have your spouse-to-be listen to this. So you go into it practicing this that lowers the divorce rate to less than 1% by those who practice it. And it's very simple. I'm not going to tell you what it is. (laughs) You have to go through the series, but all I ask you is do not go to part six first because you will not be able to appreciate it or take hold of it if you haven't learned one through five. It's three and a half hours for the whole thing, so it doesn't take that long. Just stick the pods in your ears and, and, and you'll have it. Um, I know you're nonlinear learners and you just like to you know, jump around. You, this means you go to this part first. <laughs> this, is, this is just something. But anyway, this is just something that I took my kids to. This, this is for when I give this talk to older people. But... So, I'm going to end with this. But this is, remember, serious business with the Word of God. Serious. I'm not the one that's calling you to this. Jesus Christ is. He is the one that stands before us and calls us to something that I would never dare call you to. But it's your life. It is your life. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you so much for these young people. And I pray, Lord, that the power of God would move upon them and upon their lives to cause them to love you more deeply, to take seriously the Word of God, that in their midst of their busy schedules, to set aside a time to meditate on the Scriptures, to read the Scriptures and hear you speak. Father, I pray, that they learn how to fall into this blessings that you have awaiting for them. And Father, if there's ones here that don't know you, may they experience what I experienced when you came into my life, when I said, Lord Jesus, forgive me and come into my life.
May they have the experience that I had to know you, O Lord, in the depths of their heart. Father, have mercy on these young people, I pray. Father, I pray for the young men who are struggling with pornography and lust. Father, I pray you give them victory over this. Father, I know it seems to them insurmountable. Father, I pray for them. Grant them victory, I pray. And I commit these young people to you. In the name of Jesus, my Lord, Abba Father, protect them.